Well, as you take a seat, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And if you have uh, your, your notepad or your handout that you got it when you came in, I wanted to ask you to, to jot down, if not on paper, at least a mental note in your mind, uh, to make a note of what it means to be a Christian. So define Christianity answer the questions that this entire series is predicated upon of who is this Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. So I'm actually going to give you just a moment to briefly write that out or to to formulate that answer in your mind uh, of a definition of Jesus, uh, the gospel, what it means to be a follower of of Christ, uh, to kind of what does that mean. I didn't, give the very, I didn't give the first service any time at all to do that. Um, I'm going to give you time just to think about those things. What does it mean to be a Christian? Who is this Jesus? Obviously, I can't give you a ton of time or we would be here all day. Because you can write for a very long time on this. But I want you to ask yourself of what you already have down on paper and what you already down, have down in your mind. And you can continue writing. But ask yourself, would you classify these beliefs to be absolutely true? Like 100% unequivocally true. Not just true for you, but for all people in all places throughout all of history. Would you classify the answers to these questions as true. So true that you would say, yes, I would die for these beliefs. No possible way that these beliefs are wrong. Or, would you leave open the possibility for other opinions? For other beliefs? And I know that that is a loaded exercise that is inundated and influenced by traditions, opinions, and experiences. But I pray, and hopefully is the case, that it is also inundated by the truth of Scripture. That all responses to these questions are just saturated with scriptural truth. Not with our personal opinions, but with the Word of God. And the reason we have, I want to be thinking about this today is, is because what we believe about this, what we believe about Jesus, is indicative of everything else in the world. Do we believe what we believe is absolutely true when it comes to Christ? And I'm going to say I, what I believe, according to this book and this book alone, is that everything that it says about Christ is true. And what we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, beginning today, is filled with life-changing truth. The entire gospel that we've been walking through together has been saturated with truth. But now we are are coming into the, the suffering of Christ, the passion of Christ, as we lead up to the resurrection. So if you would, look with me in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. 
And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, what have, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came, came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Now we'll pick up from there next week. But what we've just read is the Roman trial of Jesus. The trial that we looked at last week was that taking place among the, the Jewish religious leaders where they had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And as a result, they had sentenced him to death. But under Roman law, the Jewish religious leaders could not carry out the punishment of execution. So now the Jewish religious leaders are reliant upon the Roman officials to be able to carry that out for them. So what they have done now is they have bound Jesus, led him here at daybreak, and brought him and led him and delivered him over to Pilate who is the governor over this particular district. And the first thing that we see and what we're going to look at this morning is how Jesus is tried under false pretense. How Jesus is tried under false pretense. Again, he's already been convicted of blasphemy by the religious leaders, which is a false pretense of its own. Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy. He's being accused of blasphemy, but he's not guilty of it in any way, shape, or form. Now, what we need to understand is that's a charge that does not carry any weight whatsoever inside the Roman court. In Rome, Jesus cannot be charged with blasphemy, but the religious leaders know this, so what they've decided to do and conspire to do is to use his confession against him. So if you remember from back to last week in chapter 14 in verse 61, kind of the second part of verse 61, if you have your Bibles, you can just kind of flip back one page and you'll see in that verse, it says, are you the Christ? The high priest asked Jesus point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He was asking him, if, are you the Messiah, the son of God, like, like your, your teaching says and people are talking about, yeah, is this true? And he's not asking because he's curious or he wants to know the truth. He's asking because he's looking for a means to trap him. He's looking for a means to condemn him. And how does Jesus respond? I mean, giving him his reason to condemn him right there on a silver platter. How does Jesus respond? He says, I am. He said a lot more than that, but he answered in the affirmative. 
to which the religious leaders see, and they cry out, blasphemy, and they sentence him to death. Jesus tells the, the, the truth, the honest truth, nothing but the truth, and they don't believe him, not for a second. Now Jesus is brought before the Roman court. He's brought before the Roman court, and he's not on trial for blasphemy here, but now he's on trial for treason. Now why would he be on trial for treason? Well, to understand that, we have to remember that the people's misunderstanding when it came to the term Messiah. So if you're equating the term Messiah with Jesus, and they have a false understanding of that, that's going to be indicative. And their false understanding of the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to be a political type, military type deliverer who's going to free them from this Roman occupation. So now they're coming before Pilate, Roman official, and saying, hey Pilate, here, this Jesus, he's trying to mount an insurrection against Rome. He's trying to mount a coup. Crucify him. They're trying to get him crucified in this way. So Pilate asks him the question. He goes, are you the king of the Jews? Or are you the Messiah like they claim? And how does Jesus respond? You have said so. Basically, he's answering the same way he did to the high priest. He's saying, I am. But notice how Jesus doesn't expound here. He doesn't attempt to clean up their mis- clear up their misunderstandings. He doesn't attempt to defend himself. That's where we are jumping in and we're like, I want to defend Jesus here. Like, I, I want to be defending myself. I want to speak up for myself. But Jesus doesn't attempt to clear up their misunderstanding at all. But just like we saw last week, this is where Jesus' silence speaks volumes. Silence has a tendency to do that, doesn't it? It can speak volumes, especially in situations such as this. The religious leaders are making false accusation after false accusation against Jesus, coming with claim after claim that is not rooted in truth, but is rooted in untruth. And how does Jesus respond? He remains silent. Pilate even asks him, have you no answer to make? Like all these accusations, are you not going to to defend yourself here? But Jesus made no further answer, which leaves Pilate amazed. It leaves us amazed. Now there are a lot more details that are pertaining to the trial of Christ that, that are listed in the other Gospels. You have the example of Pilate sending Jesus to Herod and then Herod sending him back to Pilate and and for all those different details. But for the purposes here, in our looking at Mark's gospel, it's important for us to see that the false pretense of which Jesus is being tried under. Notice how no one has any idea of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They're all confused. The religious leaders don't get it. Pilate doesn't get it. The crowd doesn't get it. Even his own disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. No one understands for what Jesus means when he says, I am. They they don't get this. So I think it's a very important question, not, not just to assume and to look upon the audience here in the text, but to look upon us here today. Do we understand what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do we understand this biblically? Not not just culturally, but do we understand what it really means for Jesus to be the Messiah? So we mentioned it last week. We mentioned it before. We will mention it again and again and again. It's not enough to say that we believe in Jesus. Because for me to say that I believe in Jesus really doesn't tell you a whole lot other than I'm believing in somebody who was named Jesus. 
Because there's a lot of assumptions, there's a lot of presuppositions that come when someone says that they believe in Jesus. What we need to understand is, do we believe in the biblical Jesus? Because you and I can both say that we believe in Jesus. And we both can be sitting there, we can be talking, and both of us have completely wrong definitions and understandings of who Jesus is. What we need to understand is, do our definitions line up with Scripture? Because if our definitions of Christ and our belief and our understanding of Christ does not line up with the Jesus of the Bible, then we do not believe in the biblical Jesus. Rather, we believe in a Jesus of our own imagination, of our own creation. See, details matter. Truth matters. I don't say this flippantly. I don't say this lightly. Jesus is not a Mr. Potato Head that we get to create and to fit into our own liking. You know the old Mr. Potato Head doll still getting reproduced in all kinds of ways, right? What do you do with a Mr. Potato Head doll? You take it and you say, hey, I'm going to put the nose on the foot and I'm going to put the hat on the ear. And, and you've got the nose and the leg going here and, and then your child comes up and says, hey, daddy, it looks just like you, right? <laughs> well, hey, it looks just like me. We have the tendency to do that same exact thing with Christ, that's exactly what people do with Jesus. See, most people have no problem believing in Jesus, whether historically or otherwise, as long as it's the Jesus of their own imagination, of their own creation. Sure, they have no problem taking a piece here and a piece there from, from the Bible, but only so they can create a, a Jesus that fits comfortably into their way of living and their way of thinking. That's going to make them feel good about the life that they're already taking place. They have no interest in being conformed into the image of Christ. Rather, they have every interest of conforming Christ into their image. And then when presented of the truth of Jesus, the truth that the Bible sets forth of this is who Jesus is, one that is different from their way of thinking and their way of believing, they find themselves doing exactly what we see here in the text, putting Jesus on trial. They hear the truth. <laughs> That's not the Jesus I believe in. That's not my Jesus. We don't have that luxury. There is only one Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Bible. It's very important for us to ask here, and not just to point to the text, and not just to point to others. We need to ask, is that me? Like, like do I believe what Scripture says is true about Jesus? So I'm going to give you a little exercise, a homework assignment, if you will. It's going to take you some time, may not, but I would say take time with it. Go back through the Gospel of Mark. Go back through the Gospel and everything it says about Jesus or how Jesus describes himself, anything you see attributed to him, So, okay, this is what the Bible says about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? Column. What does it mean to follow him? Column. Just write those out. And then look back and say, do I believe this to be true? Do I believe these things to be true? If the answer is no, then we have to be honest. We're not believing in the biblical Jesus. We are then believing in a Jesus of our own imagination. And here's why untruthful beliefs are so dangerous. Here, here's why. Number two, the crowd is influenced by false teaching. Look at verse 8 and, and how the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them which was to release one prisoner whom they asked for. You think about that, that's absolutely crazy. 
or they had a custom where they, Pilate would release for them one prisoner of whom they asked for. <laughs> they would come, yeah, we want that murderer to be set free. That kid who just shot up a school, we want him to be set free. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but the reason that Pilate would do this is a means of placating to the people. It's kind of like throwing a dog a bone here. You've got Roman occupation over the people. Let's do this to pacify the people. But here's where Pilate has a false assumption. He assumes that the crowd has come asking for Jesus' release. And that's why he asks the question, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate, he knows the reason why the, 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 the chief priests and others have, they want Jesus crucified because they're envious of him. They're insecure in their own ways. They can't do the things that Jesus is doing. They, they don't have the influence that Jesus is now beginning to have. Pilate recognizes this. And so he's asking, okay, thinking, you've come to ask for Jesus who was well received into the city. You're asking, see, for his release. But here, and this is why I'm not totally convinced that the crowds came with a unified agenda to ask for the release of Barabbas. I don't think they all came in that moment saying, we want Barabbas. And here's why I don't believe that. Look at what the religious leaders do in verse 11. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. What did the chief priest do is they go on a campaign throughout the crowd. Hey, ask for Barabbas. You've got to ask for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We're going to crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. They're, they're leveraging their, their resources here. They're leveraging their influence. So whether it was the crowd's original intent or not isn't clear, but what is clear is the decision to release Barabbas has been strongly influenced by the religious leaders. Religious leaders who should know the truth. Religious leaders who should understand and know the Scriptures. Religious leaders who have been entrusted to lead the people in truth. But don't. They don't. It's a reminder, an important reminder, that religion not rooted in truth will always lead people astray. Always. And there's that word again. Truth. Truth. It's become like a meaningless word within our culture. But it's a very important word because when it comes to Jesus, we're either believing truths or we're believing untruths. There's no neutral when it comes to Jesus. It's either true or, or it's not true. You remember like uh, true and false tests from school? Like you, you go in and you have a true and false test. How many of you remember those? Yeah, like true and false tests were incredibly hard, like but at the same time, for the kid who did not study, and you all, like, not confession time, but you all know that there was a point in time when you walked into class not studying for a test, and you're thinking, oh, yes, thank you, Lord, it's a true and false test. 50-50 shot. You're telling me I got it. I have, you're telling me there's a chance, right? But what, what, what's not on a true or false test? An option for neutral, right? You know Why? Neutral is a cop-out. That's a politically correct way to view it, but that's a cop-out answer. Now, when it comes to, to Jesus, we can answer, I don't know. I don't know is a truthful answer. Neutral is not a truthful answer when it comes to Jesus. 
Especially for those who are entrusted to teach God's word. We can't be neutral. See, the chief priests are leading the crowd away from Jesus, not to him. And a lot of well-meaning pastors and teachers and professing Christians are guilty of the same. Because of the absence of truth. They're immersed in tradition. They're immersed in opinion. They're immersed in comfort. They're not immersed in truth. And the absence of truth can lead to what we see next. Number three, Jesus is convicted by the court of public opinion. We see this with with both the crowd and with Pilate. After the chief priests stir up and influence the crowd to ask for Barabbas, like, give us Barabbas, give us a murderer, Pilate asks them, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And how do they respond? Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate again, why? What, what evil has he done? Now note here, Pilate doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus in a biblical sense, but he also doesn't believe that the accusations against him are justified. He doesn't believe that he deserves to be crucified. But yet, what do the people cry out yet again? Even louder this time. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And look now at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, a guilty murderer. Jesus is convicted in the court of public opinion. Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. He gives him Jesus. He's convicted in the court of public opinion. He's convicted on false pretense. Why? Because Pilate is fearful of the crowd. He wants to please the crowd. And in turn, he gives the crowd exactly what they want. See, we we see the, the exact same thing today, both in the political landscape and within the church today. Leaders, people who have a greater fear of man than they do of God. Politics has long been ruled by the court of public opinion. And it's easy to make politics the proverbial whipping boy. The pick on politics. Because political beliefs, as we well know, they evolve and change with the latest opinion polls. One comes out today and a politician will say, that's where I stand. Another one comes out two days from now and it's different. And the politicians say, my position's evolved a little bit. Now this is where I stand. They want to placate to the people. But today, sadly, we see the same thing happening within many of our churches. Pastors and congregants feeling the pressure of an ever-changing culture and not being rooted in truth, not being grounded in truth, having the name of love began to placate and conform to the surrounding culture. But let us be reminded that just because the majority of the people believe something or a loud group of people believe something, it doesn't mean it's true. The, the loudest, pardon my English here, isn't always the rightest. Just because you're a loud voice doesn't mean you have the right voice. Just because you're the vast majority of people doesn't mean that you're speaking the truth. But the pressure to follow the crowd is strong. It's the power of peer pressure, right? We all face it. 
It doesn't go away the older that we get. So if you're a young person in the room today, I'm sorry. It will continue to be there throughout the rest of your life. But just because everyone's doing it doesn't make it right. We've all heard this probably from our parents at one time or another. Maybe join me. If, you, if your parent ever told you, hey, if, just because everybody else jumps off a bridge, are you going to do it as well? Your parent ever told you that? Mine did. And of course your response is, of course not, Dad. No, Mom, I'm not going to jump off a bridge. But then in the back of your mind, when nobody thinks, you're thinking, well, it depends on who's jumping off the bridge. <laughs> right? I mean, because the right person, the right group, the crowd, everybody's jumping off the bridge. <laughs> like, well, they all survived. <laughs> all right, let's go for it. It's the peer pressure's there. It's the, it's the power of the crowd. Makes it hard to stand for conviction and truth. But what we have taking place here is the religious leaders are stirring up the crowd with falsities. They're putting pressure on them to turn against Jesus. And then what does the crowd then do? The crowd then puts the pressure on Pilate. And then Pilate, knowing that Jesus hasn't done anything worthy of crucifixion, does what? He gives the people what they ask for. No one stands for the truth. Why? Because that takes conviction. That takes belief. Belief that the truth is worth dying for. Here I stand and I will not budge. And right now, at this point in the text, we see that from no one. Not even the disciples. But after the resurrection, everything changes. Why? Why why is it three days later, why does everything change? Because the resurrection is the definitive proof that everything Jesus ever said and did is true. If Jesus really did rise from the grave, and we believe that he did rise from the grave? And what other choice do we have if we're honestly contemplating this thing to, to believe and obey absolutely everything he said? No matter how our culture around us responds or thinks. You're crazy for believing that. You may think so, but it's true. And I want you to know this truth as well. And here's why we have to stand this way. Because here's the truth when it comes to the person and work of Jesus. He's not coming back and giving a a verbal, oral defense of of himself here. He's not coming back and saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. He speaks with his actions, not his words. Number four, Jesus serves as our divinely appointed substitute. Jesus serves as our divinely appointed substitute. This is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the gospel. Everything is leading us to this point. We look throughout the story of the Bible. We look through Mark's gospel. In in this particular setting, what we're looking at now, and how even foolish, evil actions of man are being used to accomplish the sovereign will of God. We see it just playing out clearly. It's the crowd who cries out, crucify him. It's Pilate who hands Jesus over to be crucified. All of them doing exactly what they desire to do. They're doing what they desire most. They fear man over God. They're doing and acting according to their will. But as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is all an act of the divine will of God. 
This is where I'm reminded in this of Joseph's words in Egypt as his brothers stood before him, probably trembling in fear of what Joseph is going to do in response. But Joseph, in confidence, looks at his brothers and says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And I'm reminded of those words here because before us, in these following verses and the verses that we are going to look at next week are the details of the most evil and horrible act in all of history. Yet from this greatest of evils comes the greatest of goods. The greatest of goods. And what we have before us is the truth of Christ. Look with me at what happens to Jesus. How he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and scourged. A terrifying punishment where one would be stripped of their clothes, bound to a post or a pillar, sometimes just thrown to the ground. And they're taking this leather-bound whip filled with bone and maybe lead particles and with every gashing blow that went across his body, flesh would be ripped from his body. Individuals would sometimes never even make it to the cross because they would die in the midst of the scourging. Yet still in the midst of this, Jesus remains silent. Then as the soldiers led him away, they they clothed him in a purple cloak. Purple being the color of royalty. You couple that with a crown of thorns that's being thrust down upon his head and they mock him and they salute him. Hail King of the Jews! striking him with a reed across his head, spitting upon him, kneeling in front of him in homage and mocking him. Still Jesus remained silent. And when they had finished, they stripped him of that purple cloak, put his clothes back and led him to the cross to be crucified. One of the most barbaric forms of execution the world has ever known. And we will look at its details and its significance along with his death next week. But today we have to ask and we have to answer the question, why? Why? Why would Jesus endure such physical suffering? Why would he drink of the cup of God's wrath that we looked at and spoke of a few weeks back? Why would he do this? It's because what we have before us is an act of divine substitution. Jesus is putting forth a visible and truthful demonstration of what it means for Him to be the Messiah. He's answering the question, who is this Jesus? He's not saying, let me tell you. He's saying, let me show you. Let me show you what it means for me to be the Messiah. The people don't understand, but Jesus is saying, here's the truth. Here's the truth. His silent suffering is speaking volumes. Jesus is telling the world both then and now that the redemption the Messiah brings is found not in politics and not through military might and not through the courts of public opinion but through His suffering. So now look at the broader picture of the text at hand. The crowd is crying out for Jesus, the sinless one, to be crucified crucify him. Even Pilate asked why? What evil has he done? (laughs) But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Yet at the exact same time, under the urging of the religious leaders, who are they asking to be freed? Barabbas. A guilty murderer. 
is set free. It's the picture of divine substitution. Jesus the innocent is crucified. While Barabbas the guilty is set free. Even that physical wooden cross that Jesus will soon carry was likely intended for Barabbas to bear. And what we each need to understand is that we're all Barabbas. Pilate is Barabbas. The crowd is Barabbas. The religious leaders are Barabbas. We all stand guilty before holy God. Yet for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever, whoever sinner believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Church, those gathered in attendance today, believe in this Jesus. The true and biblical Jesus And know with absolute certainty you will not be found guilty before holy God. You will be set free. Not because you're not guilty, but because Christ the innocent stood in your place condemned. Stood in our place condemned, exchanging your sin for his righteousness. Jesus receiving devastating blow after devastating blow that we deserve. Why? to substitute himself for us, both in life and in death, to pay our penalty for us. Believe in this Jesus and receive eternal life. Continue to believe in this Jesus and persevere until the end. Don't stop believing in this Jesus. Church, this is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Him substituting himself as in life and in death. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, is the suffering servant. It's the good news that Jesus suffered in our place condemned. And for that to be effective in our life, for that to be true of us, for us to be redeemed by his blood, we must first believe and understand we need a substitute. We need a substitute. By now you've heard me say it countless times over and you will hear me say it countless times over again. We must believe that Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. We need a substitute. We have no hope apart from Christ. And if someone does not believe this, that he or she cannot be saved. Two, we must trust him as our only hope in life and in death. It's not enough to say, yeah, I need a substitute. Yeah, I I, I need one. No, we must trust Christ alone as our substitute. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And then we trust Him. We follow Him. Wherever He leads, we go. Knowing the pressure to conform will be great. To take a stand for truth will be costly. It will only continue to be that way. But this is the truth of the gospel. This is the Christ of Christianity. This is the Savior of the world. This is what it means to follow Him. So if you do not believe in Him today, believe in Him today. And if you do believe in Him, continue to believe in Him today. Church, this Jesus is worth giving every ounce of our life to follow.
everything to follow this Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus. You, oh Lord, are glorious and holy and set apart. And we are sinners deserving of your eternal wrath. Yet in love you predestined us for adoption. You delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And in that we rejoice. Thank you, O Lord, for salvation. And we, we ask that today you will continue to open the eyes of the blind and bring the spiritually dead to life in Christ. And for those of us who do believe, we ask that you increase our affection for you, our desire to know you, to obey you, to trust you. Let us be faithful vessels that stand for truth and proclaim it boldly and compassionately to the world around us. We thank you, O Lord, for these truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond together through the singing of song. Mm-hmm.